Hi, I'm Shane Ray. Welcome to a special edition of Central Indiana Today. It is special because well, it doesn't have a whole lot to do with <laughs> Central Indiana. We have a returning guest in Alana Nash. She is an author, and uh, we'll be talking with her in just a bit about all the books she has written, specifically uh, an Elvis book that is connected with a movie that's out about the king of rock and roll. Of course, August 16th. 2022 will mark 45 years since the King of Rock and Roll passed away. And I went to Alana Nash's house in Louisville, and she was gracious enough to take some time and talk about her work and her opinions about what's going on in the world of the King of Rock and Roll. So you stay right where you are on this special edition of Central Indiana Today on WYRZ 98.9 FM and WYRZ.org. Central Indiana Today. Shane Ray talks with the newsmakers in and around Hendricks County. And now your host, Shane Ray. Welcome to Central Indiana Today. However, our guest today is not here in Central Indiana. We are actually in just outside of of Indiana. I think a lot of people call it Kentuckiana, don't they? They do. <laughs> I've got Alana Nash with me. She is a celebrated author, which we will talk about in just a bit, and a repeat guest. She has been on uh, Central Indiana Today before. It's been a few years, but we'll get into all of that. How is Alana today? It's a little muggy out here in the backyard, a little a little cricket action or cicada action or something, but uh, I'm glad to be with you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, in case you're wondering, Alana uh, was nice enough to allow us to come to her home in Louisville, and uh, we're outside on the patio. It did get a little muggy today, which is not not unusual for this time of year, but we didn't exactly expect the rain. We did okay, though. We improvised, I guess you could say. Oh, uh, anyway, thanks for having us out here. Uh, you know, when we talked last, we kind of went over your career uh, as an author, and um, I don't want to rehash all of that, but we will remind everyone. How long? When was? When did you start writing professionally? And when I mean professionally, I mean start getting checks. <laughs> I got my first check at the age of fourteen. I had a crush on a boy in my school who wouldn't pay any attention to me. And I thought, how can I win his love? And he played guitar and had a little folk music trio. So I thought, I know. I'll write a story about his trio, and I'll send it off to a national magazine, and they'll buy it. And, of course, he will be so flattered, he will fall in love with me. Yeah. That's what 14-year-old girls think. Of course. And so I did. I did do that. I sent it to Seventeen Magazine, and they did buy it. And they sent me a check for $10. Wow. And I still have the uh, check stub in my scrapbook. The, kind of like the first dollar you've ever earned? <laughs> That's right. And then I thought, well, this is really fun. So then uh, what was the next one? I guess when I was 16... I entered a contest, which was win a date with Davy Jones of the Monkees. Mm-hmm. And for that contest, you had to write in 50 words or less why you wanted the date. And so I entered a whole lot of times. And I uh, 
I know I use the word sincere in in all of them. Like you know, he's so sincere or something. You know, I'm sure. I'm sure that's what I said. <laughs> so uh, I won. Oh. So it was a trip to L.A. for this date, and I got off the plane with my mother, and they said right over here with the other girls, and I'm like, what? What are the girls? So. It turned out there were there was a winner from every major radio market in the country, uh. but nobody was told that. So of course, all, every girl was like, "Well, what's she doing here? What's <laughs> she doing here? I won the contest." So it was a group date, yeah. and um, I still have some teen um, teen magazines with photos of all of us traipsing around Marine Land and and this. Uh, uh, let's see. Well, there was a group spaghetti dinner, and we're all on the bus with with uh, Davy, who of course is just it's excruciating for him. Yeah. You know, just <laughs> he would rather have been anywhere. Yeah. And years later, I had a little radio production company in Louisville with a partner, and one day I got a call. I was in business with Brenda Lee at the time, and one day I got a call from Davy Jones, and it was either. Um, Voice or heart, one of the uh, one of the guys who wrote a lot of the songs for the monkeys, and, mm-hmm. and they had an idea that that Davy was you know short in stature, and Brenda Lee was short in stature, and they were both very popular in Japan. Mm. And Davy was going through kind of a low period in his career, and so they thought it would be great if they teamed up and did country music together. And would I facilitate this meeting? Mm. And so I told them why I didn't think this was going to work, but yes, I could do that. And then at the end of the call, I said, by the way, Davey, um, I've met you before. And he said, oh, is that, that, is that right? And I said, yes, I, I snuggled with you on a hotel couch in Los Angeles for a photograph. And, of course, there's silence. <laughs> and I said, I was one of the many, many winners <laughs> of the winning date with Davy Jones contest. <laughs> and he went, oh, my God. <laughs> now, he, uh, he spent a lot of time, and he was big into horse racing, right? Or horses, anyway. Horses, yeah, he had horses. Yeah. It was um, David Cassidy who was big into horse racing, I think. But uh, I don't know, but I know Davy had horses. Yeah. 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 And so you, but it's fun. I heard that he had horses here, or at least did a lot of business here. I wondered if there was a chance meeting, and then you answered my question. No, no, and I didn't that. even know that he came to Kentucky. So, <laughs> yeah, makes sense though. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, back to the back to the writing now. Of course, that's uh, how you got your first uh, first money for writing, and you found out this isn't so bad. So, uh, of course, like me, you found out, you know, I, I remember getting in radio and thinking, hey, this is cool. Play records all day and get paid for it. And then you find out there's no money in this. <laughs> yes. Uh, it didn't get much better than that $10 check for a very long time. <laughs> but well, my parents were nice enough to let me, li- you know, work in the basement. I didn't live in the basement, but I worked in the basement and, you know, pursue my dreams. And I still, you know, I think of them every day, of course, and give thanks that they were willing to support me for a very long time, <laughs> way past when most kids were out of the house. I'm still <laughs> working in their basement. But, you know, it, uh, 
I did it. Yeah. I still don't make much money, but but I did it. <laughs> but you did it. <laughs> now, we t- last time we talked, we talked about a lot of the books that you had written, including ones, uh, you know, uh, about country artists, about Jessica Savage, uh, all the the magazines that you've written for and things like that. And, uh, of course, you're getting some new attention because of the new Elvis movie, so we'll jump right into the Elvis books. And I had forgot this until uh, I think uh, I either saw you post something on social media or maybe I saw it somewhere. But anyway, you were a ghostwriter for Alan Fortas, yes. uh, who was a member of Elvis's Memphis Mafia, as they called it. Uh, how did that come about? Well, when Elvis died, I was working for the Courier Journal, the Louisville paper. I was writing pop music criticism and reviewing concerts for them. So he died on August the 16th, 1977, and his step-grandmother lived in Louisville. Mm -hmm. And so the paper sent me out to try to find her, interview her. I didn't find her. But then the next day, they put me on the company plane with the star columnist for the paper, John Filiatro, to go cover the funeral. And I didn't know anybody in Memphis, and it was crazy there was a shriners convention in town mm. there were no hotel rooms right fans were pouring in from all four corners of the globe to be there because they felt as if a member of their family had died and i wasn't sure where to go what to do even where i was laying my head that night and uh, i went to the newspaper in memphis and i said who is the elvis expert and they said bill burke Mm-hmm. or the Memphis Press Scimitar, the afternoon paper. So I went to his office. Uh, he was a very harried ind- individual. He was trying to cover all this. and Of course, he was someone who had covered Elvis since, well, the beginning almost, if not the beginning. And here I am knocking on his door and telling him I'm from Louisville and I need help. And he kind of looked me up and down, kind of curmudgeonly and asked me a few questions to see if I was legit, and then he said, come on. So for the next few days, I just followed him around. He took me everywhere and introduced me to everybody that he interviewed, which was incredibly kind, set me up with a place to type my stories in the newsroom, and one of the people he introduced me to was Alan Fortas. And I liked Alan a lot. He was kind of the class clown of that group. And uh, in the early days, Alan left the group uh, after the Circle G Ranch period. Mm -hmm. But um, I liked him a lot, and uh, there was something kind of sad about him at the same time, as there often is with class clowns. And so I said to him, would you be interested in writing a book? I want to learn how to ghostwrite, and I really like you, and I like your story, and so... So we did, but it took me quite a long time to do it because I was working on this book about Jessica Savage at the same time. And so it came out in 1992, and he died. He had bladder cancer, and he died just a few weeks after it came out. So when it came out as a paperback reprint years later, his son said, you know, you should put your name on it now, too, because somebody needs to talk about the book. <laughs> you know, So, uh, so that, there was a second edition with my name on it, but it's out of print now. But it might be back in print soon. Yeah. Uh, very possible due to the, um, for lack of a better way of saying it, new recognition that you're receiving. Yeah, right. So, uh, uh, that's very possible and I hope so. Uh, so then it's years later and you do, uh, a book with, um, three members of the Memphis Mafia. 
And uh, that one was, what is the official title of that one? It is the uh, Revelations from the Memphis Mafia, Elvis Aaron Presley. Now, was it because of your connection with Alan that you were able to connect with other members like Lamar Fike, uh, Billy Smith, and uh, Marty Lacker? Well, actually, Alan was supposed to be part of that book. Okay. So I met them because of that, and then, of course, he died, and mm-hmm. they just kept me on the project. But it came out later with a new title, which is Elvis and the Memphis Mafia, and a number of people have written to me, is this the same book, <laughs> or why did you change the title? And some people thought I was we were trying to cheat them by making, yeah. making them buy it twice. The reason is in exactly the way you, you read the title of this book, which you read Revelations of the Memphis Mafia. But that's the subtitle. The real title is Elvis Aaron Presley. But fans knew it as Revelations. But Hmm. booksellers knew it as Elvis Aaron Presley. So when they would look in their catalog to order it, they didn't find it as Revelations. So there was a lot of difficulty in getting the book to its audience. Yeah. Uh, I think the last time we talked, you mentioned a lot of it was done. uh, The interviews and things like that were done over the phone. Did you get to talk to them in person that much? Oh, yes, I had a lot of in in person with them. I did a lot of one-on-one interviews with all three of them. And then I did one group interview, which was a runaway train because (laughs) (laughs) there was no being in charge of that interview. Those guys would just ping, ping, ping off each other like pinball. And wow, you know, it was they they just their memories would just were just all over the place. But some of the best material came out of that group session. Because uh, they were able to feed off of each they other. They were able to feed off each other and remind each other of mm. things. You know, the the task, of course, was to, and I had, you know, so many hours of interview. Then to try to figure out how to tell this story, both as a narrative, and um, just in a way that would be most engaging for readers, because I already knew it was going to be a long book. I didn't quite understand how long this book was going to be. You could use it as a doorstop. <laughs> but um, I had just read a book about Andy Warhol's ingenue, uh, Edie Sedgwick. And it was told as an oral history. And I thought, that's the way. Their voices are so distinctive, these three guys. That's the way to tell it. Get out of the way, Alana, and let them talk. <laughs> And so that's what I did, and I think that is one reason that book resonated so well with so many people over over time. You know, it came out in 95, I think. And mm-hmm. It is still in print uh, in a paperback edition out of England. But people love it. They call it the Bible of yes. fandom, I guess. Yeah. Um, I was telling my wife, you know, when she wanted to know more about you and who was this woman we were coming to see in, in Louisville? I said, she wrote this book, and this is the one I've read three times, and uh, it is the best book. And uh, I said, these others are good. I like them a lot, but this is my favorite. This is Shane Ray. I'm talking with Alana Nash, the author of uh, several Elvis books on Central Indiana Today on WYRZ. And can you give me, um, since uh, we're talking about the individuals here, uh out of the three, Billy seemed like the most soft-spoken yet firm in what he's his convictions on. This is how I remember it, etc. And so forth. 
Marty, I was always a little, I guess I don't have much opinion of Marty, but Lamar, I believe, has been described as the most gregarious of the three, uh, just 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 bigger than life. Yeah. And uh, and I've seen interviews with him. He had a a good sense of humor. I mean, I laugh at his expressions and the phrases that he would use. And is was am I on target? Am I close? Or uh, what did you think? Lamar was brilliant. Yeah. He was really real. That's a first rate brain. Yeah. Uh, his command of the language and his his innate sense of humor in telling a story made him really come alive on the page. And I think that's what his anecdotes are, what people laugh about. Yeah. He's, he's hilarious. Uh, was it totally true? I mean, I got worried when he would tell stories that they weren't totally true. So I, I would go back to Marty. Marty was kind of the point man on this, on this okay. book. Okay. So he, if, if at least one of the others couldn't verify Lamar's story, out it went. Uh, so I can honestly say that Billy and Marty signed off on all of Lamar's <laughs> sh- shenanigans in this book. Uh, Billy was, you know, Billy's, Billy's still alive. The other two mm-hmm. are deceased now. Um, Billy was, well, first of all, I should say that all three of them were kind of traumatized still. And I remember Elvis died in 1977. Right. This book came out in 95. They were all still kind of traumatized at his passing. Yeah. And and the way he died because they had tried to keep him going. Yeah, exactly. And there was a lot of backlash for those guys through the years. Like, mm-hmm. they let him die. Let him die. Or if, if it wasn't, we they let him die. Which they were just there for the money and the jewelry and the gifts and stuff. They were just there for what they could yeah. get from him. The truth is that those guys all had jobs. You know, Alan. When Alan was there, he took care of the cars. Marty was the co-foreman of the Memphis Mafia with Joe Esposito, mm-hmm. and Lamar had kind of <laughs> lots of different duties. At one point, he was helpful in getting the best of Elvis's post comeback special songs to him. Mm-hmm. So those guys did have a function. They were adults. They had families. They needed houses. Uh, their marriages, for the most part, almost, while well, Billy and Marty uh, were able to salvage their marriage for a time, Billy always, but Marty's marriage broke up. Lamar was married multiple times, and other guys in that group, they, their marriages couldn't sustain being on call for Elvis 24-7. Yeah. So it took a toll on them. And the other thing was that they joined him when they were young men. And all of a sudden, he dies. They're roughly his age. Mm-hmm. And they don't know how to get a real job in the real world. Yeah. So they paid a big price for their years with Elvis. Yeah. Uh, I was, I, I guess, happy to see that Lamar was included because I understand because of the Albert Goldman book and his collaboration that he kind of got, he got yeah. backlash from the other Memphis mafia, just like Sonny and red and yeah. uh, Dave Hebler who did the first book. Yeah. Uh, you know, they, they also got a lot of backlash as well, but uh, I guess they finally forgave Lamar. 
Yes, I think so. I think that a lot of readers were charmed by him by when, when they read his actual words instead of my just quoting him. Yeah. You know, that that is, I think, the charm of the book. And, yeah. And it really is. I was just lucky that I that popped into my head because I, I, it might have sunk. That book might have sunk if I'd written it just as a straight narrative. Yeah. And I think people were people still talk about his sense of humor in that book. And uh, I mean, it's such a sad story. We all know how it ends. It doesn't mm-hmm. end happily. Right. And he is the comic relief for the story. Yeah. And uh, I do think that after a while, people two things happened. People forgave him, and uh, also that people realized that the story was not going to end any other way. Mm-hmm. And you know, when it first came out, there were people who wanted to kill us. I'm not kidding. I mean, really wanted to kill us. And uh, people were very emotional about it because I guess it wasn't salacious like Albert Goldman's book was. And it wasn't hateful like Albert Goldman's book was. Albert didn't understand the South or gospel music. Right. It's You know, usually when you write a biography of somebody, you like them going in. And it was mm-hmm. obvious that Albert didn't understand Elvis and didn't like him. Yeah. Um, and the other thing, people accepted the fact that the story ended the way it did over time. And Peter Goralnik wrote two acclaimed books, and he used a great deal of material from our book, so much so that he graciously sent the publisher a pretty sizable check, mm. which he would not have had to do, honestly. Yeah. So I think that all of those things are validating and people don't hate us like they did. I mean, it was a little scary. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Now, from that one, and we may come back to it at other times, I I will go ahead and say, yeah, even Lamar's stories, I I remember, and I can tell you specifically, the one that I had to read over about uh, two or three times I read, I just started laughing out loud. And it was the the story of uh, getting all the... I don't know. Uh, I can't remember now if it's it was some kind of birds, guineas or something in the ca- in the Cadillac limousine or whatever, and they're all, shall we say, for radio, making a mess in the car. And Lamar is telling that story about how he's back there trying to keep them calm Ugh. while all the birds are crapping all over this new upholstery and everything else. And the way he told it, I just I just started laughing out loud, yeah. and I had to read it again and again, and then I had to read it to whoever I was sitting next to, and it was just hilarious the way he told that story. You know, I don't even remember that story, but the one I particularly like is when he's talking about. I'm not even sure what they're doing. See, this is the thing. I need to read my own books. I forget <laughs> so long ago I need to read my own books. Right. Uh, but it's a story about horsing around with Elvis in some way, and he ends up under a city bus. <laughs> Lamar. Lamar ends up under a city bus. And I remember that was the first call I made to Marty, like, uh, did this really happen? But I was assured it did. Perhaps there was a tiny bit of embellishment, but uh, it was a real event. But yeah, he was hilarious and um, not a happy guy. And uh, I'm glad that he he's kind of immortal now. Yeah. I mean, he really is. He is portrayed uh, very briefly in the Baz Luhrmann film. You see the Lamar character several times yeah. in that film here and there, driving a bus or in a car or some such. Um, so he has his he has his definite place in, in Elvis history. Yeah. 
Uh, we'll skip over the Colonel book for now because that's what we're going to wind up with. Uh, the, the one after that that you wrote was called Baby Let's Play House, Elvis and the Women Who Loved Him. And what year did that one come out? I don't have my date in front of me. That's It came out in January 2010, and yeah. I know that so so perfectly because I had sold it to HarperCollins to come out for that death anniversary, uh, or rather birth anniversary on the on the year that uh, there was some kind of anniversary. Either of, <laughs> I, I guess it was, let's see, 2010. Um, what does that mean? He was... Uh, born in 35. Right. Don't ask me to do math. Oh, that's right. I'll have to kick remember, my shoes off. <laughs> remember, I can't do math. Uh, but uh, I had sold it for this big birthday bash. And at Thanksgiving of 2009, I was still editing my own manuscript. And, of course, they were losing their minds mm-hmm. because it was in their catalog and they'd pre-sold it to stores. Mm. So that was when they were real bookstores. <laughs> And I was still uh, making corrections. And so, uh, whew, you know, again, that was not supposed to be a big book. Yeah. My, um, and it's, it's, it's another doorstop, almost. Yeah. Um, my father had died in 2005, and my mother had a big house. And I was trying to figure out how to keep her in her house. Mm-hmm. And I thought, what am I going to do? <laughs> Well, Alana, you do what you always do. You try to write a book and get an advance that's big enough to let you write this quickly and use the rest of the advance to help your mother. Mm -hmm. But, of course, that's not what happened. (laughs) I I was just going to write a little book, Mm -hmm. just a little book, kind of off the top of my head, so to speak. And, of course, once I got into it, I thought, Silly, you can't do that. You have to write a real book. Because even though some fans refer to it as the girlfriend book, mm-hmm. which makes me cringe, um, I see why they do, of course. But right. I, I was really struck in my research by how woman-centered he was. I, I mean, we all know about his closeness with his mother. But this is a, a man who always preferred the company of women, even as a child when he babysat for kids. In his uh, very early years performing, even before fame, he wanted to be around younger people much younger than himself, and usually girls. He wanted to know what young girls thought, thought about music, thought about the world. As he grew, there might have been some developmental um, stalling. He always saw himself as a much younger person than he was, but he wanted to be around teenagers, and he wanted to be around young people. And... I also, once I really got into the deep dish research, I saw that there were quite a few women who actually influenced his act and had taught him moves for his for his dance on stage. Right. And there just seemed to be this kind of rainbow of women who had influenced him and his art. And I thought that's that's the focus. But then you bring in all these other, you know, you have to bring in the girlfriends, of course, because they were so significant in his life. But uh, that that book has been in print all this time. I'm very happy to say, and um, uh, there's some people who just that's their favorite. Yeah, and, uh, that makes me happy. Even though I think the Colonel is my best book. Uh, well, I tell you what, we'll go ahead and jump into that. Uh, the The one you wrote in between was called The Colonel: The Extraordinary Story of Colonel Tom Parker and Elvis Presley. Uh, 
you and I have communicated because, uh, full disclosure, we're Facebook friends and we communicate through Messenger quite a bit. And uh, you said to me that uh, I'll, I'll just give an example. Someone like Dick Clark said, what in the world are you writing about this guy for? He deserves to be forgotten. Yeah. Uh, did you see more of that as you went along, uh, putting it together or was he kind of a standout standalone type of opinion? Well, what I learned, and I had three meetings with Colonel Parker from 92 to 94 in Las Vegas. People are very polarized about the Colonel and people who worked with him, particularly young guys who were assigned to him by the William Morris agency or worked with him on the road to advance Elvis's shows. Absolutely love and adore him, have named their children after him, have gone to the ends of the earth to try to make people see all sides of him. And others, of course, want to string him up. Mm-hmm. So Billy and Lamar were not, uh, or Billy and Marty, I should say, were not fond right. of the colonel. Yeah. He did humiliate them. Mm-hmm. He went out of his way to make fun and poke fun of people, to get an edge on them. He saw everybody as a mark. Lamar was the one who made me think, there's more to it than this. Because Lamar helped me see a number of things. Particularly in the colonel's importance in preserving the right for the Elvis estate to all the money is due to them when Elvis died, which set a precedent to some degree for dead celebrities in the future. He protected the, the estates for the right for the, for the rights for the estate. Mm-hmm. And Colonel was very uh, criticized for taking care of business on the day Elvis died, just hopping right to it, calling RCA to make sure they had their printing presses, record printing presses working overtime, uh, the pressing uh, machines to make sure that they, there was product for the glut of interest and the record onslaught people would, would uh, set in motion with this death. He, he <laughs> called up a young guy named Joe Shane, who used to live in Louisville, who had been uh, ripping off Elvis for years, putting Elvis's picture on T-shirts and selling them through ads. And uh, kind of honor among thieves. I'm a friend of Joe, so I can say that. He'll understand that. <laughs> uh, to make sure that he got his cut. He took him to William Morris mm. and protected Joe. And uh, he hopped right to it. You know, Lamar thought he was cold, but he took care of business. Um, I think the colonel, the colonel is a very complex character. Mm-hmm. Here illegally from Holland, never became a citizen, never took Elvis overseas because he didn't have a passport. Of course, the question is, why didn't he just go get a passport? Why didn't he just become a citizen? He served in the U.S. Army for four years. Mm-hmm. Why didn't he? And that was one of the riddles I was trying to solve with my book. So there, he always took too much money. There's no getting around that. Uh, too, too much of any deal. Uh, the deals he made for Elvis always benefited the colonel more than they benefited Elvis. Mm-hmm. When Elvis died... He got um, $675,000 from RCA just for his personal services in advancing the cause of Elvis Presley. And he got a $100,000 advance from Harry the Bear Geisler, 
who had a company called Factors and had made a big hit mm-hmm. with a poster of Farrah Fawcett. Yep. These were monies for the colonel, not for the estate. So mm-hmm. within 24 hours of Elvis's death, he had $775,000 in his pocket. Did Elvis and Vernon care that he took more money than he should have? No. No, no, they didn't. And they didn't. They didn't for a couple of reasons. He had them convinced that no manager could get the deals for them that he could. They totally believed that. And Vernon was not the most scrupulous guy in the world. Uh, Vernon always had his hand out and took money under the table, which the colonel gave to him because he could influence Elvis, who, again, is a deep and true artist. He's not a businessman. He's counting on Vernon and his manager to look out for him. Elvis, when his father would hold his head and moan about the amounts of money that Elvis was spending, he said, Daddy, you know what this means? Instead of doing a 30-day tour, I've got to do a 31-day tour. (laughs) So he thought there would always be money, and for the most part there was, even Mm -hmm. though he was having to mortgage Graceland short-term to make his payroll Mm -hmm. near the end. So as long as Elvis had what he, the money he wanted to mm-hmm. give away Cadillacs or trailers for the guys at the Circle G Ranch or whatever it was he wanted, he didn't care what the colonel took mm-hmm. because he knew the colonel's mind was always whirling and would come up with the next big thing that would put money in his pocket. Yeah. You know, the percentages, you know, like you said, no one else is going to make you this kind of money, Elvis. Yeah, if you want a fair deal, sure, you can get someone else. But uh, not that he actually said that to Elvis, but, uh, you know, the thought was there. And maybe even they, Vernon and Elvis, knew it, too, is my thought. Always reminds me of those scenes in um, Dukes of Hazard where Boss Hog would tell Roscoe, you get 50% of my 50% of that 50% of 50%. And it was still going to be better yeah. than what you were going to get with someone else. Yeah. So, uh, uh, yeah. And, you know... These people who criticize, and like you said, some of it is just, but the people who criticize Colonel Parker are looking at it through uh, hindsight. At the time, no one imagined, you know, that this kind of stuff was going to be going on, just like when some people criticized the RCA buyout in 1972. They said his his old records really weren't selling. They were just sitting there and he wasn't making any money off of it. So why not? And of course we can see what happens, you know? And, uh, so like some of it is just, some of it is not. And, uh, it's, uh, amazing to me that some of these people don't realize, you know, what you're saying is easy to say when you're looking back that way, but when you're actually there at the time, but that's true. And with the buyout, people think the colonel orchestrated that for his own good. Mm -hmm. The truth is that RCA came to the colonel and made that offer, and he took it to Elvis, who immediately said yes, because he needed money for Priscilla, who had come back after, after the divorce and wanted more money. By the time the colonel took his big hunk of this, plus his hunk of Elvis's hunk, yeah. <laughs> and Priscilla took her hunk, yeah. there wasn't much for Elvis. Yeah. And, you know, Priscilla may regret that. Some may have regretted it through the years, but, you know. It was the time it then. It was the time. Yeah. And the other thing is that um, I 
had to cut out a lot of the kernel, the kernel book, because my uh, I spent a lot of time uh, writing about his childhood in Holland. I went to Holland and met with his family and was amazed by what they told me. And, and then I spent a lot of time talking about his years in between Eddie Arnold. He built Eddie Arnold into a household name and the time he got Elvis. And during that time, he was booking Grand Ole Opry stars. Mm-hmm. And I interviewed a bunch of those folks, Chad Atkins, Minnie Pearl, little Jimmy Dickens, on and on. And they all said he had a sterling reputation. That man was really thinking. He knew ways to get people into those seats Mm -hmm. with grocery store coupons and ways of thinking that nobody else was doing in in, uh, country music. And uh, I remember little Jimmy Dickens said he was perfect. That was his word, perfect. And his wife played cards with Colonel's wife, Marie, in Madison, Tennessee, and uh, they were all pals, and they thought the world of him. And I remember Chad Atkins, who the Colonel had booked both as an act with the Carter sisters, and then, of course, he had to deal with the Colonel when he was an executive at RCA and produced Heartbreak Hotel. Yeah. I asked Chet uh, in one of his last interviews before he died what he thought of the Colonel, and he said, he was the best I ever saw as a manager. So, you know, he he had such brass and know-how. Uh, it was Elvis's lucky day when he met him because uh, without him, he probably would have been a flash in the pan and, yep. and, uh, and faded out. Yeah. Or had other problems like his contemporaries, uh, and certainly not a criticism of these people, but like Carl Perkins, Jerry Lee Lewis, uh Johnny Cash may be an exception, but those other Sun artists who were big at the time but then had problems later on or just quite honestly didn't have quite the talent. And uh, the Colonel was able to to make that happen, I think. Shane Ray, I'm talking with Alana Nash, author of Baby Let's Play House, Revelations from the Memphis Mafia. The Colonel, uh, which is uh, subtitled The Extraordinary Story of Colonel Tom Parker and Elvis Presley. Also other books like Dolly and Golden Girl, the story of Jessica Savage. Uh, uh, There's so many things, and I know we're not going to have time, that I would like to ask you about the Colonel, uh, well, all the books, but uh, the Colonel one that we're talking about specifically but uh, the last time we talked, which was a few years ago, you were hoping that uh, uh, that it would take off, you know, in other areas, shall we say, and then uh, and then the new movie comes out, and uh, me and a lot of people in the know, the hardcore Elvis fans, knows. Uh, that um, and again, I'm not trying to flatter you, but that was this is the book. This is the one that should uh, should be get all the recognition. And I'll I'll just stop it right there. But uh, uh, the movie came out. You and I communicated a little, and um, you said, um, or do you want to make a comment about that, or should I? Well, you know, I, I did a, an email interview with Baz Luhrmann for AARP's website Yeah. And before the film came out. Yeah. And my last question was, did you read my book? Which I knew he had because I knew two people had given it to him. I mean, I knew 
for, for a fact that two people had placed it into his hands. Mm-hmm. And I knew for a fact that Tom Hanks had really studied it because he told a friend of mine that he had. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was, you know, really curious to see what Daz was going to say. He said, well, I didn't read it because I'm dyslexic. Mm-hmm. But my team read all of the books. And then they pulled out information and they put it into three different columns about what we're going to use, might be able to use. Maybe not. Yeah. And um, so some of my things went up on that board. And I do see things in the in the film, it, it, as well as the overall arc of the film, of course. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, it's very hard to prove uh, copyright infringement, particularly with a nonfiction book. Sure. But um, part of me is just thrilled that he used it. And the other part of me thinks, gosh, darn it, I should have had a story credit on that film. Yeah. Well, uh, the, the, I guess you would call it a windfall, uh, whatever. The, like I said, the fans know, if you want to know what's true in this movie, what's not true, whatever, ask Alana. Oh, thanks. Uh, uh, the article you did with Variety, I believe it was Variety, about uh, yes. what did the movie get right, what did it get wrong, yes. et cetera. And I have reposted that on social media and I sent it to friends because my circle says, well, let's ask Shane what was right, what was wrong, whatever. I say, read this. Oh, that's so nice. You've really (laughs) been a friend to the book and to me through the years. And I want you to to know, Shane, how much I appreciate it. Oh, well, it's uh, I've read a lot of books of the Elvis books. um, And I'll tell you what, in my opinion, distinguishes these from the others it's the writing uh i don't know any other way to say that it's the way just like you said with uh the one you did with uh the with uh billy and lamar and alan uh i'm sorry marty uh the way you you got it right by printing it the way you did with in their own narrative, I guess is the best way to say it. So that's what drew me into that one so much. And from there, it made me notice the writing in the other ones. And so, uh, I think you may have seen a picture of my bookshelf. I have a stack of books and these three are always together and they're the ones I go to. That's such a compliment. Wow. Shane, thank you. Well, I appreciate, uh, appreciate all. I can see the passion, I guess. And it helps. You can be passionate and just suck at expressing yourself (laughs) and, uh, you don't suck at expressing, (laughs) expressing that. So that's the reason I say all that now. Um, well, you know, I grew up with Elvis. I mean, I was six when he appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show the first time. So I lived it in real time, the phenomenon right. in real time. And I always tell people who weren't alive in 1956 that you cannot imagine how he changed the world, how everything changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, teenagers got their own culture. We've yeah. seen a little of that maybe with Frank Sinatra, but the Bobby Soxers grew up. And they left that behind. Uh, all of a sudden, there was marketing to teenagers that there hadn't been before. It was a way for teenagers to set themselves apart from their parents. Yeah. Uh, just bringing the black and white communities together, if only musically at first, was phenomenal. And seeing a man move with that kind of freedom and of dress, of music, of dance, of you name it, it was world altering yeah 
And it was such an exciting time to be alive and see him. And of course, I had a mad crush on him, but I also wanted to be him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I had a guitar. I had asked for a guitar for Christmas. And I scratched his name on the top of it with a safety pin. <laughs> and my, <laughs> my sister said, you're going to get in trouble for that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the bug bit and it, it, it bit hard. Here we are. <laughs> <laughs> All these years later, and 45 years after his death, yeah. and I covered that funeral at Graceland, here we are still talking about this man, it, and, and it's all over the world. It is a phenomenon like no other. Uh, as far as the movie goes, I, uh, I sent you a message, and I stuck my foot in my mouth, I guess you could say. I said, you know what? You're probably better off not being associated with because the movie's just all wrong. And you said, well, you'd be surprised. Fans are loving it. And I thought, no way. Because I saw it early. And I just could not have been more wrong. You don't, it, it's still, even, and it's mostly younger people, which was their goal, and which is good for the estate and us Elvis fans to keep things rolling. Uh, they come to me and say, oh, I just loved it. Didn't you love it? When this? I say, well, that's not right, but I'm glad you liked the movie. And uh, I'm, I'm glad I was wrong. And uh, if, But I do tell everyone, I say, if you want to know the truth, go get this book by Alana Nash. It is the one to go with. And so um, is there anything... Give me three things in the movie, let's say, that you think, oh, that just irks me the way they did that or that they said that or whatever. Because I have two or three of my own, but you go ahead with yours. I think the most egregious is Elvis firing the colonel from the stage. Mm -hmm. That's one of my three. That never <laughs> happened. Yes. He did have confrontations with the colonel who right. want to leave him. But it was, he, you know, Elvis was a pretty classy guy and a smart guy. Yeah. He would never have done anything like that from the stage. Yeah. Now, he did have a confrontation from the stage with Baron Hilton, so to speak, yeah. that he was ticked off yeah. that the hotel had fired one of his favorite employees there. But to go after the colonel in that way? No, no, that never happened. No. Um, I am really ticked. <laughs> and, and I'm no apologist for Colonel Parker. I want to, I want to make that clear. I just try to see all sides right. of the character and the story. But I was really chagrined to see how he was portrayed for the 68 comeback. Especially, yes. Where he looks like a bumbling fool. Mm -hmm. He knew that there was not going to be tons of Christmas music. But, yeah. but certainly by the time frame, certainly by the time frame of, of uh, what they show. Yeah. Um, and they make him look inept. Yeah. Sucking up the sponsors. That, Colonel was not like that. He would say, you want my boy, you do it my way. There is a very funny line that almost gets unheard when he's walking down the hallway with the singer sewing machine representative. And he suggests that Mrs. Presley would like to have their newest model of a knitting machine so he could make a, she could make a sweater for Elvis. Yeah. <laughs> and that's funny for a number of reasons. But the colonel all, was always getting appliances out of RCA or whoever, whatever out of anybody for free. So it was kind of a game with him. Mm -hmm. um, 
I was not happy that Eddie Arnold was omitted completely mm-hmm. um, and that we don't see Hank Snow getting snookered out of half of Elvis Presley. Yeah. That is not – perhaps in the four-hour version we'll see that. Uh, it, it, the way he ends up with Hank Snow in the film is, is – uh, I mean, there was a, a much more dramatic uh, breakup. Yeah. And I'm sorry that that is not included. Yeah. And, of course, like most movies, you can only include so much – in, in a two-hour time frame, but uh, that's why I tell people read the book, <laughs> the book. But um, one thing that irked me, uh, of course, you mentioned the '68 TV special, which I tell people that you know, never happened like that. They wouldn't have built those big sets. And anyway, you've you've touched on that. So the accent. The last time you and I talked, and this was, of course years before the movie, we talked about how the colonel worked so hard to pass himself off as a Southern, you know, or at least from Virginia or wherever it was, you know, uh, native. I think West Virginia. There you go. And uh, if he had talked like that, there's no way that anyone would have ever believed he was from here. Well, I think that bothers me so much that I temporarily forgot it. So thank you for reminding (laughs) me of that. I I was horrified by the accent. I mean, really just like my jaw dropped when I first saw that in the trailer. I was like, Oh my gosh. No, seriously, seriously. Um, And you know, and, and why it's particularly aside from everything you just said, why it's particularly irksome is that, in the film, we're supposed to believe that Elvis learned that Colonel was not an American, which I don't think really ever happened. Well, now, didn't Lamar say that the Colonel told him that Elvis knew? At well, that one was time? Af- that was in 1980. Yeah, Elvis was gone. Yeah, uh, there is some uh, indication that the Colonel introduced his brother to Elvis, but Lamar said to me. Uh, that that can't be right, or or Elvis didn't understand this was really his brother brother. Um, so, so if he did do that, it didn't sink in with Elvis. He said because Elvis couldn't keep a secret. Yeah, he would have discussed it with all of us. Yeah. But the other thing is in the film, so we see that Elvis learns that the Colonel was not an American, and he's so shocked. Well. <laughs> With an accent like the Colonel had in the <laughs> film, Elvis would have had to have had a tin ear not to have heard that and wondered, where sure. did this come from? <laughs> it's uh, insulting to Elvis. Yes, it is. Uh, and uh, Now, this is one of, one of those little things, but there's a scene, I think it's taking place around nine, about right after the TV special, I believe, in the movie. And um, suddenly they're picking out jets, and uh, everything else, and talking about touring the world. And Priscilla's there holding Lisa, and she says, you know, they're going to get a jet, and she says, I think we should name it the Lisa Marie. And I'm like, holy crap. <laughs> he didn't get yeah. the Lisa Marie until years after they were divorced, yeah, and she true. had nothing to do with picking yeah. out a name. Yeah. So. Well, you know, to be fair to Baz, there's a lot of telescoping that had to be done, a lot of fitting yeah. events in. I'm sure Priscilla and Lisa had their own input as to sure. what was shown and not shown. You, you notice, you notice in the film there are no other women except Priscilla and Dixie Locke, his first significant girlfriend. There's nobody after Priscilla in this film. So yes, I think there were a lot of uh, fingers in this pie. Yeah, and uh, also as you mentioned before, that, that just it's a lot of story to fit into 
what ended up being two hours and 39 minutes. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I've told other people that, though, that, you know, if they try to, and it happened in Priscilla's TV movie, the movie based on her book, I remember that they tried to portray it that after they were divorced, Elvis was this tragic, sad character until he died and never was wanted anyone else or anything. And I tell them, it's not the case. Don't believe that bunk. Yeah. But and it happened again in this movie, That's right. you know. So. That's right. Dramatic license. Yeah, exactly. But you know, yes, I've seen it four times, and I'll go again this weekend, I think, before it gets taken off the big screen, mm-hmm. because it really is a big screen experience. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, and big speaker experience. Yeah. And nothing against the actors, right. especially. Um, Austin Butler. Austin, he's he did magnificent a, on in the stage sequence. Fabulous job, yeah. yeah. And and they, in editing, they did a great job intertwining the actual yeah. Elvis footage yeah. with yeah with him. They did very good. A lot of little Easter eggs in there. Where yes, we get little glimpses of the real <laughs> Elvis and the real Gladys and Vernon in, in that one sequence. But when he's, Elvis is going off to the army, yeah, that uh, I thought that was very poignant, especially to see her. Yeah, um, but. Uh, so the first couple of times I saw it, you know, I'm just outraged that this didn't happen. Steve Bender uh, never took uh, Elvis up to the Hollywood sign, that kind of thing. <laughs> These factual inconsistencies or errors or fabrications. And then I thought, you know, Alana, it's going to make you crazy. So let go of that and just enjoy this film. Yeah. This this emotional ride and this magnificent performance by Austin Butler. And so then the next two times I saw it, I could do that. And, and you know, I there are three times that I cry in it, and I cried just as hard on the fourth viewing as I did on, on the first. Mm. The um, When he sings If I Can Dream. Mm-hmm. And uh, just at the end where he talks about the bird with no legs, which is dialogue from Tennessee Williams, which leads into, of course, the finale. And I won't, for those who haven't seen it yet, I won't say. But by, the, by that finale, I'm just shaking in the theaters, a sobbing all mm-hmm. to myself. You know, I was just it really, and, and you know, if you can get people like that, if you can uh, shake their emotions up like that, you, it's a success. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And like I said before, it's great for the estate, the legacy, yep. all of that stuff, which the rumor is, and I don't know if you've heard anything about this or maybe even know something. I don't know that, um, uh, what's his name? Buzz or uh, Baz? Baz uh, says has said that he got to see a lot of unseen footage from Elvis on tour, yes, and he is that. looking into bringing some of that out. Finally, maybe now they'll see mm-hmm. that this can be profitable if it's mm-hmm. done right. So, I'm all for it if that. Yes. If that's the the outcome. Yes. Well, it's it's such a legacy, it's such an artistic legacy, and unfortunately it's been tainted by lots of other things through the years. And uh, he was, a, as, as I say, a deep and true artist. His voice, although it faltered at times, was still pretty intact and magnificent to the end. Yeah. And I'm glad that he's been treated with respect in this film. And I'm thrilled that, that uh, younger folks, I have a friend who's, 13-year-old godson is now just, you know, over the moon about Elvis and wants to go to Memphis. Yeah. So that, the, the, the movie has hit its target. It's always interesting to me that in America, the fans tend to be older. In Europe, the fans are all ages. Yeah. And they see him very differently over there. He's a much more serious artist than we do in America. So maybe the film will change that image for Elvis yeah. here. 
All right. We've been talking with Alana Nash. Uh, she is the author of, uh, actually now it can come out for Elvis books. Uh, one uh, with, with Alan Fortas uh, was the beginning, as we said. But then uh, Elvis Aaron Presley, Revelations from the Memphis Mafia. Next came uh, The Colonel, The Extraordinary Story of Colonel Tom Parker and Elvis Presley. And then don't call it the girlfriend book. She doesn't <laughs> like that, okay? I never did, by the way. Baby, let's play house. Elvis Presley and the women who loved him. And these are are these all the same publisher? No, they're different publishers. Different ones. Yeah. Okay, but I think all of them can be found on uh, probably Amazon. Yes. If not, your as you said, a real bookstore somewhere would be yes. great. But uh, the Colonel, yes. Um, and uh, as I have been saying, you know what? Enjoy the movie. It has its merit. But if you want to know the uh, the truth, get the Colonel, the extraordinary court. <laughs> Extraordinary story of Colonel Tom Parker and Elvis Presley. Elena Nash, thanks for talking with us and being a guest on Central Indiana Today. Shane, thank you. It's always such a pleasure to speak with you, particularly somebody who is so knowledgeable about Elvis. <laughs> thank you for asking good questions. And there you have it. That's my interview with Elena Nash, author of uh, four Elvis books. And uh, specifically one about Colonel Tom Parker, which if you've seen the movie, that's fine. Elvis, wonderful. Glad for you. I would say go back and read Alana's book if you want more details and truth on that. And we do want to thank Alana Nash once again for her time and allowing us to come to her home for that interview. That's going to do it for me on Central Indiana Today on 98.9 FM and WYRZ.org. You've been listening to Central Indiana Today with your host, Shane Ray. Finding out what your town council, school board, or county commissioners are up to can be accomplished with a Republican newspaper in Danville. Started in 1847, they've been providing local news, sports, features, and more. Subscribing to the paper is possible by calling 317-745-2777, and they can be followed on Facebook by searching for The Republican.